Kristen Ralph Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We have a spectacular show you are going to love, love, love. We're going to jump right in with our first guest. We are joined right now by a spectacular guest, Professor Leslie Alexander, who is a historian, an author, an activist, an advocate, and of course, a professor. Welcome, 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 Professor Alexander. Thank you so much. I think that might be the nicest introduction I've ever gotten. Oh, you at least the most enthusiastic one. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna say you deserve that and so much more. <laughs> Thank you. Right now, we are in Black History Month, and you have done such a tremendous amount to shift our nation's narrative, to speak truth, and to move change. I wanted to take a moment to talk about the Fear 1619 project. It yeah. was created to bring to light so many ways in which Black people have been part of the development and the very fiber of American culture and society and communities since the beginning of our country. In the book, you co-author a chapter entitled Fear with your sister, Michelle Alexander. So many teachers, particularly social studies teachers, are grappling with book bans in a really ridiculous way. No one should have to grapple with book bans are navigating how their curriculums might discuss critical race theory, the story of Black people's roots, and the truth of American history. With the far right outrageously attacking anything and everything progressive in racist and misogynistic ways, what are some of the ways that we can proactively discuss American history and the inclusiveness of Black people's narrative and experiences and contributions to history? And in what ways do you feel the fear, quote, plays part of our examination of the emotion and what it looks like from a historical standpoint? That's a big question. It is. A big, what are your thoughts? It is, a big, it is a big question, but, you know, I think in some ways it's the question, right? At least relative to what's happening in the educational system and in our school systems today. And I think it's actually unfortunate that education and history have become so politicized because the reality is that, you know, what the 1619 Project is talking about or what historians like myself are talking about are actually not that radical, right? Like, all we're really talking about is to teach a holistic honest and inclusive history of the United States so that when our kids go to school and they take an American history class or they take a U.S. history class, they're actually learning about the history of the United States. It's actually something I would think everyone would want, right, for our students to go into school and actually come out learning the topic of the course that they were supposed to be taking. Um, the problem is that, you know, United States history is not always a happy, positive story, right? It is a story of challenge and contradiction, right? It is the story of the founding of a nation that was founded on really beautiful principles, freedom, liberty, equality, justice, you know, brotherhood, which, you know, in the 21st century, I would like to think of as, you know, a humanitarian embrace of all humans, right? But the United States as a nation has often lived in contradiction to its founding principles. And I think that's 
the tricky part, right? Is that there are some forces that are not comfortable with teaching the hard histories and telling the uncomfortable truths and don't know how to navigate that. But the reality is that teaching honest history does not have to be political or oppositional. It can be the presentation of honest truths that we talk through and work through collectively. And I happen to know that because I've been a professor of history for more than 20 years. And that's what I've been doing in my classrooms, right? For all these years is to tell the history of what happened and have us work through and talk through it together. And I'm not sure why that feels so so scary and dangerous. Like to me, it goes to the very heart of what a democracy is supposed to be. And yet it has somehow become perceived as this kind of terrifying threat. To me, what's befuddling is there's a saying that is history repeats itself, particularly if it's not examined. Yes. Those hard truths, those roots of racism in our nation's history, as you mentioned, are not aligned with our nation's founding ideals. And we have yet to reach our nation's founding ideals. We have a long way to go to get there. Mm-hmm. And a key way to get there is to examine the mistakes of the past so we don't keep making them today and tomorrow. That's and right. so when I think about the attack on history, it's really an attack on our future. It's an mm-hmm. attack on our future ability to reach toward those founding ideals of liberty, truth, and justice for everyone of all genders and all backgrounds and races and ethnicities. Because if That's we right. can't come to face where we've been, we cannot take the steps to where we want to be because we're bound to just keep repeating our errors. It's just so heartbreaking to see that happening because... Oh my gosh, do we want, many of us want, at least I would hope, to build toward that liberty and justice for everyone. And it's just a block in front of that. And do you think Mm -hmm. that the very act of the attack on history being a block on us getting to that liberty and justice for all is part of the tactic of the attack on history? I mean, I do. Let me put it this way. It's hard not to wonder to ask oneself the question, why do people oppose the t- teaching of truth? Like it's 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 on its face, it's nonsensical, right? So it then makes you naturally as a critically thinking person, <laughs> right? Um, as a thoughtful person, you do have to take a step back and ask yourself like, what is at stake? Why is there so much opposition? Why does this feel so terrifying? And why is there so much angry opposition to just simply telling truth? Um, And it does make me feel like there are people who feel more comfortable with having an American population that is composed of uneducated ignorant, asleep, um, non-critical thinkers than to have an enlightened, educated, awake, active, engaged population. And you would think that people who want their nation to thrive would want enlightened, educated, intelligent, engaged people, citizens. Um, and yet the truth is that like ignorant, uneducated people are much easier to control and manipulate. 
And so it makes me wonder, right? When someone is advocating for not telling the truth and keeping people uneducated, I have to wonder why they don't want people to think and learn. And it's the very same people who are banning books, attacking history, who are also putting forward at the state and federal level policies that limit people's ability to vote, which just underscores what you just Mm -hmm. said. You know, there's like an agenda here. We're taking people out of being able to vote, being able to participate in democracy and community, being able to build that better nation for a future. It's really an attempt to block proactive positive policies that we know lift our families and lift our economy and lift our country. And it makes me so That's mad. Right. I need to take like a whole bottle of Tums just talking to you. <laughs> it makes me so mad because we're just talking. I mean, it's just, and, you know, it, I, for me, I'm like, it shouldn't be this way. Mm-hmm. So when I'm sort of yelling at the ceiling, it shouldn't be this way. And it's Black History Month. <laughs> we want accurate, real Black history. We want to know. We want to know so we don't repeat the harms of the past and we can build that better future. How can we help preserve the importance of teaching the true history of our country and to, you know, celebrate our differences and the freedoms that we want to fight for together? Well, the truth is, I think there's a lot we can do. And I think that one of the things that can be a little frustrating and overwhelming in these situations is that you, you know, it's easy to fall into the trap of feeling like, you know, there's this massive power structure that's banning books and passing laws and outlawing this and, you know, removing that. Um, And it can make one feel powerless. But the reality is, is that there's lots that we can do on lots of different levels. First and foremost, parents can take an active role in a number of ways, right? One is that you can be a presence in your schools. You can be a presence at the school board, you know, meetings. You can be a presence, you know, a presence in interactions with the administration. You can speak up and make it clear what kind of an education you want for your children, what you expect and demand and insist upon um, for your children. So it does require that parents become more actively engaged in agitating for the kind of education they want their children to receive. The other thing is, is that in the meantime, parents can also take a much more active role in what they expose children to in their own households, right? So, um, for example, one of my um, nieces or, you know, this past holiday season um, wanted, asked for every book um, on the banned book lists, you know, and that's what she wanted, right, for the holidays. And that's what she wanted as her gift, you know. So we can take on some of these challenges, right? We have a, we do have some control over what happens in our own households, right? We may not be able to change everything that happens at the school board level or every decision that a governor, you know, or a Congress makes, but we do have control over our own households. And so we can make decisions about the television shows that we watch with our kids, the documentaries that we share with them, the material that we introduce to them, the messages that we send to them about what we value and honor and respect. We can buy them books. You know what I mean? We can go to the library and check out the books if we can't buy them. You know, we can introduce the young people in our lives, whether they're our own children or whether they're just the children in our communities. We can take an active role. 
in exposing the young people in our lives to the types of ideas, thoughts, books, you know, documentaries, films, television shows, whatever, we can introduce them and expose them to the material that we want them to have in situations where the schools are unwilling to do so. And then I think the truth is, and I've actually, I'm in the process right now of pulling together, you know, a group of other historians and and academics to to think through how we can, you know, sort of pull it together and, and fund it. But, you know, I think that as you know, as professors and as academics, there's more that we can do to make our knowledge available to the general public, you know, so that you don't have to have money to pay college tuition in order to learn the material that I present in the Introduction to African American History class. You know, um, you don't have to wait until your kid goes to college. Um, if they're able to go to college at all, in order for them to be exposed to the type of information that we have access to. So I'm, you know, I'm working with a group of people that are trying to think through how can we mass distribute, you know, videos, lectures, um, little short segment, you know, what can we do to help make the information that we have more accessible and free of charge to parents um, to teachers, to educators, to librarians, to anyone who wants to have access to this information to share with people, and they can get it free of charge um, and be able to, you know, show it in their own homes and in their classrooms, regardless, right, of what politicians say we're allowed to do. Thank you. Thank you for your advice. Thank you for your knowledge. Thank you for sharing your insights. And listeners, if you have moms quote, for liberty near you. I call them Moms Against Liberty. You just heard how to fight back. You can fight back in your community. And guess what? Big news. When we looked at what happened in 2022 elections, Moms Against Liberty lost most of those races. So you listeners are more powerful than you think and your voice carries a ton of weight. Thank you so much for being on, Professor Alexander. So appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back with our next guest talking about compassion, the power of compassion, and why it helps us. We'll be back in a quick flash. We're going to fight for love. Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by a guest who has some important, important news to share with you. We have Kathleen Romig, who is with the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, a fabulous organization. Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you. So right now, people are seeing in the news the debt ceiling being used as a political football. Who's going to support it? Who's going to oppose it? What's happening? All of the things. It's reading like a soap opera. But not often is the debt ceiling debacle actually explained by reporters. Can you share with our listeners what is the debt ceiling and why does it matter? Sure. Well, it makes sense that not a lot of people are familiar with it because the United States is the only country that has anything like this. And um, it doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense. So, you know, if you think of the federal budget sort of like your household finances, it's like, um, you know, every month you have bills, you have to pay your heating bill, your mortgage, um, and your credit card bill. 
Um, but what the debt ceiling does is it says once you have paid out a certain amount, the amount that the government has um, taken in for that day or week or month, then you can't pay anymore. Even if your credit card bill is due, even if your mortgage is due, even if your heating bill is due, you just can't. If you don't have the cash on hand, you're not allowed to pay it. Um, and so that doesn't make a lot of sense. These are debts that we've incurred. You know, it's the debts that we um, owe to our creditors, like bondholders, you know, anyone who's holding a treasury bond. It's um, the debts that we owe to people who are receiving Social Security benefits or Medicaid coverage or school lunches. Um, so any one of those payments or all of those payments will be threatened if we uh, breach the debt limit. Now, what's causing us to potentially breach the debt limit? And why is it the Republicans doing one thing and the Democrats doing another? So what's causing it, there's actually a dollar limit in the law. Once you reach that limit, um, you just can't pay anymore. And in the past, almost every other time, uh, Democrats and Republicans have come together and just increased it. it. They've said these are the obligations that we've incurred, whether they're benefit payments or to our bondholders. And of course, we're going to pay them. Of course, the full faith and credit of the United States government is always good and we will pay our debts. But in recent years, it has become much more controversial. And Republicans have put strings, uh, attached strings to raising the debt ceiling. And so, for example, about... Um, in 2010, so about 13 years ago now, there was another big crisis and Republicans demanded big cuts in spending in order to raise the debt ceiling. After that, President Obama said he wasn't negotiating again. And that's where the Democrats are holding firm right now. They're saying we don't negotiate. Of course, we pay our debts. We're not going to be held hostage. We're not going to, you know, of course, we'll negotiate on the budget as that's part of Congress's job. We'll do that in the regular order of things, but we're not going to do it as part of a hostage-taking scenario. And a lot of people are like, wait, hostage-taking scenario? How does that work? Oh, yes. I guess I didn't, I didn't explain <laughs> what happens. If, I'm if laughing, but it's actually kind of tragic. We've seen this happen. It, it doesn't go well. Exactly. So what happens if you reach this? Um, well, if you go over this debt limit then, and the bills come due, you can't pay them. So you can't pay social security beneficiaries. You can't pay doctors who are providing Medicare and Medicaid services to people. You can't pay for for kids' school lunches. You can't pay for childcare providers and education and one third of state budgets come from the federal government. And of course, to the bondholders too. Um, so that would be a total catastrophe. All of those payments would be delayed. Um, all of those people would be without the money that they're owed. Federal employees wouldn't get paid, federal contractors. Um, so it would cause huge havoc in the economy, as you can imagine. Um, for one thing, it would, you know, bring even just coming to the brink of the debt ceiling would call our credit into question. So last time we did come to the brink and the United States credit was downgraded and the economy lost billions and billions of dollars because of, of just even coming close to reaching the debt limit. But if we actually came to that point where we, ex you know, where we breached the debt limit, then you can imagine the markets would, would go crazy. There are estimates out there that say, you know, we could lose $12 trillion of people's savings that are in the stock markets. It would probably plunge us into a deep recession, losing millions of jobs. It would be total chaos. <laughs> what can people do knowing that there's about to be this bizarre debt ceiling battle that, as you said, only happens in the United States of America, yikes, um, to help 
stop it from happening? The hostage taking in particular from happening. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think as always, you can talk, talk to your representatives and say, we need these things. You know, I mean, I think some policymakers are saying like, oh, well, we'll wall this one thing off or that one thing off and then it will be okay. And there's a question of whether that's even possible to do, but there's no matter what happens, we're all going to be harmed. If the economy tanks, we're all going to be harmed. If we go into a recession and people are millions of people are losing jobs, we're all going to be harmed. And of course, we all rely on government benefits in a million different ways, you know, whether it's our kids go to public schools, or we get health care, um, you know, through Medicare, or Medicaid, or Social Security, or a million different things, federal employees. And so I think the most important thing we can do is just express to our policymakers that we expect them to make good on their promises to pay these benefits, to pay these providers, to pay bondholders, and not do any shenanigans with us. I love that. Please don't do any shenanigans with the debt ceiling. (laughs) Hello. I agree. That's like the best congressional messaging. And, you know, really, it needs to go to Republicans, people. I'll just be partisan for a minute because it's Republicans who are standing in the way of moving forward as a country on this and so many other things at the same time as they have pretty regressive tax policies. Can you talk about the contrast between the types of tax policies that Republicans are proposing and Democrats are proposing? Because one of the things is people think about debt ceiling. What does that mean? There's also revenue and revenue is where taxes come in. And and can you share about how the revenue fits into this whole debt ceiling crisis to begin with? Yes. Well, that's a really important question. You know, the the people who are trying to hold the debt ceiling hostage say they're very, very, very concerned about deficits and debt. Well, how do we get deficits or debt? Because we have more money going out than we have coming in in taxes. But these same people who profess to be so concerned about deficits and debt are actually pushing tax cuts for the wealthy. They want to extend the Trump Trump tax cuts, um, which are expiring in a few years, and they want to do new tax cuts. So that would actually make our deficit and debt problem worse. So we don't think they're being very serious about deficits and debt. They just want to cut spending and cut taxes. And so what Democrats are proposing is to increase taxes on wealthy individuals and big corporations. And that's very popular because, you know, many wealthy people and big corporations don't pay their fair share in taxes. And that would help pay for all of these things that are so important to so many people and help with our deficits and debt, too. Yeah. In the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, what are the common questions that you get about the situation as a whole? Yeah. I mean, well, for one thing, just asking what the heck is this? You know, like you said, it's not something that comes up up every day. It's something that comes up in a crisis. The last big crisis was 13 years ago. It all seems very arcane. And thankfully, it's not something that we have actually breached before. And I hope we never do. And so just trying to understand what does it mean? um, And what does it mean for me? And what it means for every man, woman and child in America is that if we breach this limit, um, it is going to be a big problem. Um, And uh, the other questions that we get um, have to do with some of the ideas that people are coming up with. They're saying things like, oh, well, what if we prioritize bondholders? Or what if we prioritize Social Security? Is that some way out of this? And the answer is no, there's really no way out of this crisis. There will be a crisis if we breach the debt limit. And there's no way to just prioritize your way out of it. That is simply default by another name. 
When the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities got started, were you thinking that this type of debt ceiling debacle would be a, a consistent fight that you would have to get in over and over and over absolutely. again? No, absolutely not. You know, the center was founded back in the 1970s, and it just was a routine thing back then. Uh, people, you know, whenever we reached the limit, Republicans and Democrats came together and did the responsible thing and said, yes, we are going to make good on our promises. We're going to pay our bills. But it's only in recent years that it's become such a problem. What do you attribute that to? Like, sometimes I open my eyes at night and like, why is this such a problem right now? This should not be this way. I mean, we shouldn't have a situation where one political party, the Republicans, hold the entire country hostage in our payments. Um, just honestly, as a political football, because we all know we have to pay our debt at some point. Yeah, I mean, I think what the people who are doing this hostage shaking are trying to achieve are things that are very unpopular. You know, cuts to Medicaid, cuts to things that affect kids like education and school lunch and um, child care. Th these are all things that would be hurt uh, if we if we breach a debt ceiling. And these are all the kinds of things that they like to say, oh, it's just it's mandatory spending, it's entitlements, it's whatever. But they don't talk about where our government spending goes and where it goes is to help people. And we all need that kind of spending. And it's very unpopular. And so if they can't force it in this way, then they're pro they probably don't have the votes for it. Absolutely. And that was why that moment in the State of the Union was so powerful, where the president said, hey, People in every party want to keep Medicaid and Social Security. And they said yes on live TV that they did. But what that was alluding to was this upcoming debt ceiling fight. And can you share a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, President Biden has been saying, look, the um, Republicans are trying to force cuts in Social Security and Medicare. And they're using the debt limit debate to do that. And some Republicans have been saying, no, that's not true. That's not what we're saying. But, you know, you can look back at what they've actually proposed. And yes, some Republicans certainly have proposed that. So, you know, during the State of the Union, Biden was clearly alluding to a plan by Rick Scott, you know, who is the chairman of the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee in this last election cycle. And he put forward a plan that would sunset um, every single federal program, including Social Security and Medicare, every five years. Well, after the State of the Union, he finally went back and changed it and said, OK, every program except maybe those two and a couple of other things. And so um, so that was one of the things he was alluding to. But that's not the only thing. It wasn't just one person. There are certainly other people who have proposed cuts. And the Republican Study Committee, which is the biggest um, ideological caucus in either party, in either house, um, it represents about 75% of House Republicans. They put forward a budget plan last year that included raising the Social Security retirement age to 70 years old. So that would be a 20% cut across the board. They proposed raising the Medicare age to 67. So that would mean that seniors and people with disabilities would have to wait another two years to get their benefits. And those are absolutely cuts. And there, again, that's a position staked out by a committee that represents the majority of House Republicans. In our last minute, how can people get involved and stay involved and support the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities? You do incredibly important work and it's really complicated work. How can people, you know, help out? Oh, thank you. Well, I think, you know, follow us on social media, of course, and share, you know, we try to put things out in sort of bite-sized chunks too with nice graphics and things. Um, so share with people. 
you know, if you're so moved, reach out to your members of Congress and explain why these things are important to you. And of course, just read, read our stuff. Yeah, read and share and support, donate, contribute, all of the things. Can you share again your Twitter handles? Oh, sure. Mine is um, Kathleen Romig, um, and the Center on Budget is just Center on Budget. So important, people. It's going to get spicy in Congress. It's going to get spicy around the debt ceiling. So in real time, you can follow along with what's happening and how you can make your voice heard with Center on Budget and Policy Priorities Get involved, stay involved, support the Center on Budget and Policy Parties. And thank you so much for being on with us, Kathleen. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Next up, we're talking about taxes and why they're actually terrific. We'll be back in a quick flash. With me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by Frank Clemente with Americans for Tax Fairness, my favorite person to talk taxes with. Welcome, Frank. Good to see you again. How you been? I'm good, and I'm even better because you're on, because taxes. I love taxes. Taxes get a bad name. But people who are listening, do you like clean water? Yeah. Then you love taxes. Do you like to flush your toilet? Yes. Then you love taxes. Do you like to drive on the road? Yes. Then you like taxes. Do you like public education? Yes. I mean, I could go on forever. So Frank, why do you love taxes? Hey, let's let's not forget about Social Security and Medicare. If you like those programs, uh, <laughs> they are funded by taxes, the taxes you pay uh, as you are working. So, uh, so many parts of our lives. Taxes are really important uh, at a personal level. Uh, I want to have a secure retirement, and I know I can't afford that unless we have a strong Social Security program or we have a good Medicare program that's going to pay for most of my medical bills. Uh, I care about taxes because of my family. My kids went to public high school, public grade school. Uh, That's how we uh, create an educated workforce. Most of us can't afford private schools for our children. And also for the larger society. I mean, we our taxes go to, for the police. They go to uh, national defense. They go to protect us, you know, in the world at large. They go, as you said earlier, to, for roads and bridges and to move across the country. So, so many things we do. It's 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 a group collective thing. It's not just you. Unless you're really rich or, or well to do, you can't afford these things unless it's collectively paid for through our taxes. Why do you think overtime taxes have such a bad reputation? I'm like, hello, taxes are awesome. I, you know, it's uh, it's a very effective public relations campaign by the right, the right wing, and particularly the Republican Party. The Republican Party used to kind of be uh, together with Democrats on you know creating good, strong communities that depended on public tax dollars. But Ronald Reagan kind of, they went, you know, 40 years ago, early 1980s, they went a different way. And they basically, uh, for uh, I think for ideological political reasons, they decided that they could win elections by hammering, making taxes a dirty word uh, and making people feel like taxes. You shouldn't be paying taxes to the government. You should be able to keep the money yourself. And they just did a great job of brainwashing people to think that um, you don't need to have a strong government that helps provide important critical services to all of us. 
And instead, you can go it on your own. And I say that's fine for wealthy folks. Yes, they can go it on their own in a lot of ways. Uh, but for for average Americans, no, we we cannot afford this stuff by ourselves. I mean, none of us, uh, unless you are socking away huge amounts of money every year to pay for your retirement. Uh, that's what Social Security is there for. A lot of people get more money from Social Security than they put in, and that's because it helps. Um, it helps folks uh, at middle and lower income levels more than it helps rich people. And that's really important to raise. It not only helps people, it also helps our economy. When we have programs like uh, Social Security and the Earned Income Tax Credit and more, when those funds go out, they go immediately into our economy where they spark our economy. They're used to fuel businesses and the return on investment is incredibly high. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you're most of your small businesses understand this. I mean, they're they're at the retail level, right? They're providing uh, goods uh, to and services to people in their community, and they know if if the retiree is not getting their Social Security check, or so many people go bankrupt in this country because of medical expenses. So if you don't have health insurance either government provided or private insurance, you can't afford to go out and, you know, and, and buy things. Uh, and um, it's, it's really, that's where the rubber hits the road uh, at the, at the retail level, the middle-class level, the community level, when people are trying to live day to day, pay their rent, uh, put food on the table, buy their prescription drugs. If we don't have a collective sharing of, of, uh, of, of, of income, of, of, of health insurance supports, uh, of child care supports. I mean, a lot of women and men can't even get back to work because they cannot afford child care. Well, you and I know, we think that the, we, the government ought to be helping people subsidize them, providing them with assistance so that they don't pay any more than 7% of their income uh, for their child care. Uh, that's what President Biden had proposed. And so it's only by the, that kind of collective collecting of that revenue by from big corporations and from the wealthy can we help folks uh, lower down the income ladder? And the other thing that I just want to lift up is the hypocrisy slash irony slash double standard of many Republicans who pretend to oppose taxes actually are proposing regressive taxation, which really moves money from most of us to the very wealthy. And we have this moment, this opportunity where we can fix our tax system, make it more fair that we'll pay for a lot of the policies and programs that we want implemented at the national level and make taxing fairer for everyone without raising middle or low income people's taxes. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about that magic? Yes. Well, I mean, that's what the president uh, Biden ran on uh, when he ran for president. It's what he proposed. He proposed $4 trillion of uh, of uh, new revenue paid for by the wealthy and corporations to deliver universal child care, uh, paid family leave, uh, uh, guarantee people uh, health care they could afford under the Affordable Care Act, uh, massive spending on roads, bridges, internet, broadband internet out in our rural communities, um, the, protect us from climate change, uh, create a clean energy economy so that we can uh, reduce the amount of uh, carbon we're putting in the atmosphere so our planet will be able to survive. All of these things are able to be delivered with with uh, uh, increased taxes on the wealthy and corporations and using it for productive things, purposes that will grow our economy, that will create a lot of jobs, uh, and that will bring us into the future. You you said a minute ago 
some Repu many Republicans are proposing to actually raise taxes. I think what you're referring to is there's been a longstanding proposal. It's been in Congress for a whole bunch of years. They call it a fair tax. <laughs> uh, completely uh, oxymoron name. It's not a fair tax. It's a 30% national sales tax. They would basically replace the income tax, which now is progressive. People who make more pay more than folks uh, who, who make less. Uh, they would replace the income tax. They would replace the Social Security, the payroll tax, the Medicare tax. They would replace all those taxes and instead institute a 30% national sale tax that you would pay on every single thing you buy, whether it's a car, whether it's diapers for the kids, whether it's your rent, what have you, on down the line. And, of course, analysts have said there's no way it's going to be 30%. It's going to be more like a 60% tax. Can you imagine? And, and also, this, not only that, but... It, it's a sales tax is regressive. And what I, mean, yes. what I mean is if you are of lower income, you are paying a much higher share of your income for that tax than if you're a millionaire, right? It's a flat tax. So say it's a it's a 30% tax. Well, 30% tax on somebody who's making $20,000 a year takes, uh, you know, $6,000 out of their pocket. Uh, a 30% tax on somebody who's making a million dollars a year it's a much less of an ink of a hit on their on their overall income uh and, and money that comes back to them so the point is it's a very dangerous tax we're we're going to defeat it it's not going to go anywhere uh but this is the kind of tax increase that they've proposed a 30 percent national sales tax which is really a 60 percent national sales tax and at the same time most of the republican party is proposing to renew the trump tax cuts People may remember in 2017, there was a huge debate over the Trump tax cuts. More than half of the money was going to the richest 1% of Americans. Uh, they, it, it, it's um, up for renewal in a few years, but the Republicans have started already to uh, wage a campaign in Congress. In the House, they introduced it last week with 70 co-sponsors on it. I guarantee you all the Republican presidential candidates who are going to be running starting this year, they, this is going to be the centerpiece of their economic program is to renew those Trump tax cuts. And we've got to uh, put a stake in the, in the heart of that. Yes, I love that you put a stake in the heart of that. So I just want to put in summary what you just said, because I want our listeners to really sit with this. Many Republicans in Congress are proposing a 30% sales tax increase, which, as Frank just said, is actually a 60% increase because of how it's implemented, which would be for everyone, no matter how much money you make. Meaning if you make $15 an hour, you're paying the same amount of taxes as you'd be paying if you're making $15 million a year. And so it's not okay. It's regressive. That's not fair taxation. And also it's ridiculous. We do not need a 30% sales tax increase. And also it's hypocritical. We have the same Republicans who are about to do a fake sort of shenanigans about the debt ceiling, proposing ridiculous things um, with sales tax increases. And speaking of which, we don't have very much time left, but what are your thoughts on what's happening with the debt ceiling and how that's tied with taxes? Here's what I, I'd like to leave your listeners with. Um, first of all, the debt ceiling uh, is sacrosanct. The Congress has to raise it. They can't put any conditions on raising it. It's, it is needs to be raised to pay for the things Congress already said that uh, is already spending money on. There should be no conditions on that. Uh, you could tank the economy if you put conditions on it. The Republicans shut down the government uh, and the government can't pay its bills. It can't even pay its Social Security 
payments out to folks that can't pay the vendors that work for the government, the contract with the government. It'll be a disaster economically. And all the major economists right and left say what a disaster it will be. We've got to change this whole conversation. It's For years, it has been dominated by Republican messaging that says cut spending, cut spending, cut spending in order to deal with the debt. We've got to change it to raise taxes on the rich and corporations, raise taxes on the rich and corporations, raise taxes on the rich and corporations. That's how we deal with uh, meeting our needs, doing more of the investments that we need, but also some of it can go towards deficit reduction. Hey, remember, uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act, which passed last summer, uh, it, uh, it reduced the deficit by about $300 billion because it raised a whole lot of money uh, from corporations and from wealthy people. And it used that money for health care, used that money for a clean energy economy, but it also used that money for deficit reduction. Republicans, the first thing they voted on the House this year was to slash funding that went to the Internal Revenue Service. That new money to the Internal Revenue Service was to go after rich and corporate tax cheats. And it by, by doing that, we were, they were raising $114 billion that was reducing the deficit. That's the kind of crazy thinking that Republicans do. They, they they have this thing about no tax increases, even though these tax increases make the society better. <laughs> they raise money, they reduce the deficit, and they allow us to invest in the things that people need, that people can't afford, like healthcare and housing and uh, childcare. Absolutely. I am so glad that you're on and we have one minute left. I'm wondering if you could tell people how you can take action on these important issues and get involved and stay involved and support Americans for Tax Fairness. The most important thing is to talk to your members of Congress. They need to hear from you. Uh, phone calls are especially important. Uh, the This capital switchboard is 202-224-3121. All you have to do is plug in your zip code and uh, they will connect you to your senators and they will connect you to your house, uh, your a member of Congress, your representative, call them and say to them, uh, you do not want spending cuts. That means you don't want cuts to Social Security. You don't want cuts to Medicare. You don't want cuts to Medicaid. You don't want cuts to food stamps, uh, things that sustain people. What you want is you want tax increases on the rich in corporations. Uh, you want what President Biden is proposing when it comes to tax increases on the rich in corporations. And remember, he's his proposal is to not tax anybody uh, raise taxes on anybody making less than four hundred thousand dollars a year. Please call and deliver that message to Congress. If they, it's a sustained drumbeat. They need to hear from us for the next bunch of months, and we will win this battle. Americans for Tax Fairness. Uh, go to the website, uh, sign up, get our regular emails from us uh, right there on the homepage. Thank you so much. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for lifting our country. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Cheers. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Next up, we're talking about, oh my goodness, the debt ceiling. Sounds boring, but really isn't. Find out why. We're going to fight for love. Hansen. And we're going to talk about compassion. He's president of the Global Compassion Coalition. Welcome, Rick. Thank you, Kristen. It's an honor to be here. Oh, I'm thrilled that you're on. So compassion, it's so important, yet it's being run over over and over again by an 18-wheeler truck. 
Why is compassion so important? And then we're going to ask, why is it being run over by 18 wheeler truck? Like this is the problem. <laughs> what's happening? Well, it sounds fancy compassion. It really boils down to empathy plus kindness. In other words, empathy lets us register the stress, the weariness, the injustice, the pain, the loss, the suffering broadly of other people and yourself, because you can have compassion for yourself too. And then with kindness or benevolence, we wish the suffering would be less. We have a sympathetic, tender concern. You know, I'm a parent of two now adult kids with my wife. And you know, when a child falls down, they, they hurt their knee, you naturally want to come over. There's like, oh, you know, can I kiss your boo-boo and make it go away or something, right? That's compassion. And at the largest scale, it's through compassion for the needless sufferings that is preventable and caused by systems of injustice that have been with us as in many ways for thousands of years you know compassion moves us to try to relieve those causes of suffering at the systemic level that's why it's so important and that's partly why so many long-standing concentrations of wealth and power uh, are kind of against compassion or they sneer at compassion or they politicize compassion when in fact it's maybe the most fundamentally human emotions and motivations of all yes very profound it is one of the most fundamentally human emotions of all yet seems to be on the decline if you look at the newspapers you can see there is more community-based violence that's rising mm -hmm. we're seeing a lack of compassion in shall i say one uh section in particular of our political parties the maga republicans yeah. um and so why do you think in this time right now mm -hmm. Compassion is under attack. Uh, multiple reasons. So first off, the opposite of compassion is callousness and even cruelty. So you think about people who play the authoritarian classic card throughout history of demonizing others and forming their group identity around callousness and cruelty to toward those uh, uh, that you they feel attacked by, even when there's no attacking going on at all. I mean, that's just really classic. And I love the phrase I came across in politics, performative cruelty, right, to establish dominance. It's, it's an age-old strategy. The problem is, and here's what's like freaking mind-boggling to me, is that new science shows that our ancestors who lived in small bands throughout most of the 300,000 years that people like you and me have just walked the earth, they lived together on the basis of compassion and justice. Unlike all other primate species, and there are hundreds of them, our species is unique. Thank you, ancestors, living on the basis of caring and sharing, compassion and justice, unlike those other primates who lived on the basis of alpha dominance. Okay, but then came agriculture with surpluses and large populations enabling concentrations of wealth and power that blew up the birthright of our species and it's been kind of Game of Thrones ever since. That's the bottom line. So what we're doing in the Global Compassion Coalition, what you're doing in your work with Moms Rising, so many other groups worldwide are forming, or they're taking a page out of our ancestors' playbook in the band and becoming big enough together, joining together, stronger together, big enough to be strong enough to actually reestablish 
compassion and justice at the foundation of all human societies. That's the mission of the Global Compassion Coalition and also fundamentally what you're doing yourself. So there's a lot of conversation about how do you get more compassion? Like how do you absorb it? Do you eat it for breakfast? Do you breathe it? What's going on, right? And there was one study that I thought was really compelling and it said that reading had a measurable impact on increased compassion of people Uh. who were reading. The reason is because when you are reading in a novel that is immersive, you're walking in somebody else's shoes. So part of compassion is the ability to take your mind out of your head, out of your bubble that you're walking around in, and try to pretend that you're walking in somebody else's shoes. Now, we can never fully be in anybody else's shoes, but sometimes novels or media are the ways that we can get there. With the rise of social media as one of the main ways that people are consuming information, And the fact that it's short snippets of 140 characters or maybe a paragraph or a short video of under a minute, we're not getting that book length or that movie length time to really sit and think and walk in somebody else's shoes where that compassion can be built up. And do you think that's having an impact on our politics, our policies, and how we're treating one another um, as we're trying to switch lanes on the highway? (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, I do, actually. So the combination of, um, you know, social media, plus the massive lurch to the right, uh, and the institutional core of the Republican Party in America has led to an America and the rise of authoritarianism in other places worldwide has uh, been related to, I think, what is measurable through surveys, a decline in um, kindness, empathy, generosity, especially toward those who are not like me. It's easy to be compassionate toward people you like, but can you also recognize the suffering of people who are different from you or even you um, disagree with? And that's why it's really important to track the fact that you don't have to agree with someone. Like with my wife, you know, I don't know, 41 years we've been married now. I don't agree with her about everything, but I try to have compassion for her, right? We can have compassion for people who are making you mad. (laughs) You know, uh, because it doesn't mean you agree with them. And in a funny way, it actually calms you down to have compassion for whatever it was in them that led them to do whatever they did that made you mad, for example. Much research shows, really, Kristen, that we can grow compassion as a trait. It's kind of our humanity superpower. We can develop the capacity to stay calm and strong with our own boundaries while also opening our hearts to other people. And that intersection, you think of the great leaders, you know, I think of people like you, frankly, uh, others in our time, Michelle Obama. I grew up during the kind of the main surge of the civil rights movement, women's movement, gay rights movement, environmental movement. So many of those leaders, like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, bless his memory, they they lived in that intersection of the strong heart. They were able to preserve their fundamental open-heartedness. They were not. They did not allow hatred to poison them. They did not allow others to get into their heart uh, in a poisonous kind of way. They could keep their hearts open while being strong and powerful and effective. And to me, that's the intersection that we need. Whether it's at the scale of our family, you know, speaking speaking truth to your to your husband or wife or your kids, your neighbors, your friends, um, but doing so with kindness, 
you know, with a kind of fundamental goodwill toward everyone. Do you have some practical tips for growing kindness in yourself and in, oh, yeah. you know, people around you? Well, there's tons of research on this, actually, and including really trippy details. Like, for example, people who really practice kindness have a much stronger immune system. You know, they protect themselves and uh, they actually have technically a 50% uh, greater likelihood of living during a period of time than people who do not have a strong sense of positive social relationships. Wow. So research shows, and there's some very simple practices. So I'll, I'll just name a couple right now. And I've, you know, I've worked a lot with families and, and parents and, and mothers. Uh, one is bring to mind someone that's easy to feel friendly toward basic friendliness. Like, honestly, for me, it's easy to feel friendly toward you right now. I'm appreciative. You know, yeah, we're not best friends, we're not besties, but you know, I wish you well, like, right? Yeah, uh, if there, if you were you stepping well. in front of an onrushing bus, I would like help you get back. I say, watch out, Kristen. <laughs> you know, rather Thank than going, eh, too bad for you. you know, I'd be scared of the bus, but would also help. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. You'd pull me back too. Okay. So know what it feels like to be friendly or kind. Kind, we wish others to be happy. If we're compassionate, you know, compassion presupposes suffering and we wish for them not to suffer. So you know what it feels like. Second, bring to mind someone that's easy for you to feel compassion for. Like you're, you're sorry that they're dealing with that. Just ordinary support, respect, good wishes. That's too bad. It doesn't mean that you have some kind of superiority complex, like you're pitying them in that negative sense of pity. It's just that, oh, know what that feels like. And then what's really cool is to start with where it's easy. And there are these major practices in different meditative traditions that really focus on this. You start with someone who's easy, and then you build it out to someone who's more neutral for you. And then you include yourself along the way. And then you start working with people who are increasingly difficult. Maybe it's just a, you know, a, an in-law who's a little annoying. You still like them. Then you start moving out to people who really bother you. You start moving out to your political opponents. And more and more, you literally build up the muscle inside of, of a kind of inner freedom. You don't want to let them steal your lovingness. What a terrible tragedy. What a theft if you let them steal your lovingness. And sometimes people get a little concerned that that means that we're also getting rid of our moral compass, but you Correct. can be compassionate and loving and hold tight to your moral compass. So you, yeah, can that's what I said earlier. You can disapprove of people. You bet. You know, totally. You can be like, Hello, I'm compassionate for you. I'm so sorry that you have experienced this terrible tragedy that has caused you to be regressive in your social policies that you're advocating for. And I'm still going to advocate for the policies that I'm advocating for as I'm compassionate for the situation that has caused you to lose your compassion. I mean, you can yeah. have both things at the same time. And I want to raise that because sometimes people go, wait, it's one or the other. You know, it's you can either mm -hmm. be compassionate or you can have your moral compass, like about what political or policy direction sure. you want. You can have both people. We can have both. And I think it's important to hold both for a number of reasons, but one of them is that it is really damaging to carry hate in your heart. It's yeah. heavy. Carrying hate is a heavy weight. And so when we're carrying that, as we're advocating, um, it can cause burnout. It can cause stress. It can cause all kinds of things. So being compassionate to other people is often also being compassionate to yourself. I think that's so important. And you can maintain your moral compass as you're compassionate. My husband has a little trick that he does, which I think is hilarious. That's great. 
So we've been married for 27 years. And when he's feeling a lack of compassion, he starts thinking of all the reasons that he likes someone. You know, what small things does he appreciate? So this means in our marriage that when I start getting compliments, I go, hmm. Are you like, have I like super annoyed you for some reason? Because <laughs> I'm a lot of compliments here. No, but it's a kind of humorous. But it also, when you are um, yeah. thankful, when you can find the reasons to be thankful, that also that gratitude can build that battery power for compassion. And again, you can be a compassionate warrior. Compassion does not mean sitting on the couch and saying, oh, everything's great. Um, well, fantastic. And you're totally right. And what a brilliant husband. And you know, I find for myself two things. One is that um, the people who are challenging for me at a personal level, family, relatives, neighbors, you know, at that real level, coworkers, um, I'm a lot more effective and a lot less upset when I find compassion for the load they're carrying. And second, when I think about people that I disagree with vehemently at the political level, including people who are causing tremendous harms, I find for myself that I feel lighter and less controlled by them, less bullied by them when I find compassion for them. So it's good for me. You know, it may well be moral in that sense of a moral compass to have that attitude toward others. And then also, I just want to maybe finish on the whole thing about compassion for yourself because that's one of the hardest people in the world for most people to have compassion for, for yourself. Like, it hurts. You're carrying a load. You're trying hard, you know? It doesn't mean you're wallowing in self-pity or you're getting arrogant or superior to others. It just means that you, you recognize the ways that things are difficult for you and you have a supportiveness toward yourself rather than the indifference that a lot of people have toward their own pain because they don't feel like they matter enough or they feel like, or they've internalized messages from society that you're second tier, you don't matter enough. Classically, girls and women are socialized to put themselves last behind everybody else, right? So it's really important to claim for yourself that you matter, how it is to be you matters, and you deserve support, including the support you can give to yourself. I love it. Thank you so much for being on, Rick Hansen. Thank you. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in as we tackle the top topics facing our nation in a way that requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of the planet Earth. Here goes. Views expressed on this show are those of the individual speakers and should not be attributed to Moms Rising, to this station, or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of this show to the public or to any segment of the public. Boom! We'll catch you next week. We're gonna fight for love.